do do <laughs> sorry, do it one more time because I'm I'm doing one, two, three, and you're doing one, two, three, clap. Welcome back to the random badassery rodeo. Strap yourself in for who knows what's gonna happen. I will be a clown today inside of a barrel, and opening the chute for you will be my friend and your friend, Lam Wen. Does that make me the barrel or the bull? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That makes you the clown who opens the shoot. Oh, I'm officially the clown opening the shoot. Okay, You're, the shoot is open. Go for it. You're, you need to watch more rodeos. I do. I, We're both clowns. Everybody knows that. I've never in my life been to a rodeo. I feel like I should go just once in order to have the experience. They're kind of cool, aside from the possible cruelty to animals part. Who knows? Sure. Well, um, some big news today. Um, but before we get into the big news today... I want to uh, have a little talk with you, audience, about advertisement and sponsorship and uh, things like that and let you know where we stand. So one of the big problems I see when I see, you know, the way podcasters deal with advertisements in their uh, in their shows is I feel like it really goes to extremes. There is the the minimalist, um, the minimalists. It's hard to say that word and enunciate that last S. Uh, their route is that they don't do advertisements and they have a mantra that they repeat over and over again, which gets kind of old in my opinion, that we don't do advertisements because advertisements suck. And uh, first of all, I don't think advertisements suck. I think advertisements, when there's too many of them and when they're for things that you don't care about, advertisements suck. But when I see an ad for something that I'm interested in, I usually go buy that thing because... I was interested in it, and I wouldn't have known about it if it wasn't for the advertisement. So I don't necessarily agree with their philosophy. What do you think of their philosophy, Lamb? Um, I agree with that. I mean, for, for all for all intents and purposes, what we're talking about is is how much you are willing to shield yourself in order to make a buck, right? And I think in our case, we've we've made this very clear from the, the essentially the beginning that we would never have advertisers unless we believed in their product or personally used them. Um, you know, like for our, our tools and te- uh, our tools and techniques episodes, um, we always talk about apps that we're actually using. No one pays us to talk about them, um, and no one um, pays us to give them praise and/or criticism, for that matter. So, um, I think you and I have always stuck to that philosophy, and we've always stuck very clear to the philosophy that unless we believe in it, we're not gonna we're not gonna um, accept a sponsorship or advertise for that particular company. That brings me to the other end of the spectrum, which is. I, I, I actually feel bad that I'm calling out specific podcasts, <laughs> but I want to give you guys specific examples. But I, I, I had to l- stop listening to a podcast that I really enjoy, which was Tim Ferriss' podcast, because the way he deals with advertisements, it just started to nauseate me over time because it's it's like the first eight minutes of his podcast is – it's not even him talking about the advertisement. It's a recording that he did – one time that he plays over and over and over and over again. And it just shows no interest in the product. So it sucks for that company, but it also sucks for the audience because who the hell wants to hear the same thing described the same exact way in the same exact recording over and over again when they just want to get into the show. And especially the length of it too. It's so long. (laughs) Joe Rogan kind of does the same thing, but at least Joe Rogan has the heart to talk about it individually every time. Sure. And he might go off for 15 minutes on on one of his tangents about the product, but it's fresh and new every time. And it just shows an interest. You know, companies 
you, we've talked a lot about tech and you know turning off your phone and all that stuff. But I want to make something very, very clear to you guys. Companies and business is not a bad thing. It's just implemented poorly a lot of the times. And we, what we're really against in this show is not technology, obviously, because we love apps. We're against overload. We're against things that get in the way of you creating things. And we, there are a lot of great companies out there. And it, it, I, I just I think that, that they deserve a good advertisement if you get them as a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, for for example, I, I you haven't mentioned uh, who who our sponsor is going to be, but yeah, I totally agree with that. There are plenty of good companies out there, um, and even a, a lot of people think that a lot of the megalith companies, um, like the massive corporations, are all bad. Um, and don't get me wrong, quite a few of them are. But most of most people who get into business or politics or whatever it is don't get in to hurt people. You know, they get in to try to help people, and sometimes that goes horribly wrong, and sometimes it goes moderately right. You know, like if you look at most big companies like Apple or anything like that, they have their positives and their negatives. Google has its positives and its negatives. You know, Facebook has its positives and its negatives. So, you know, there's and, and there are quite a few smaller to medium sized companies who are overwhelmingly positive in their 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 altruistic goals or their 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 view towards the future and where we're headed with both technology as well as culture. So, yeah, that's that's definitely true. There are definitely some companies that I would plug even if they didn't pay us to do it. You can consider this a plug, but like companies like Tom's and uh, Warby Parker, all these companies that when you buy something, they give something of that you know shoe or glasses to somebody in need. These are companies that are out there are actually trying to make a difference in the world. And what I want to remind you guys of too is business and technology and all these things. That's creativity too. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we would be pretty pretty hypocritical <laughs> advertising. Marketing; those are those are creative pursuits as well. We, I mean, we talked early on in the podcast about guys like, um, you know, Marcel Duchamp and 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 Andy Warhol and, um, God, I forget that one other guy's name. Um, but their their entire their entire um, foray into the art world wasn't about art itself. It was about whether you could get away with something, and a lot of it was about advertising and 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 marketing, and so. You know, if, if the modern age tells us anything clearly, it's that one of the, the, the biggest moves towards the artistic or creative world is actually marketing. I mean, some of the most creative things I've seen over the last 10 years have been in marketing. Um, so that's definitely true. I mean, it's one of those things like, you know, you if, if there's money in, in marketing, for example, then there's money in creativity. And it's amazing what certain artists can do with massive budgets. I mean, the opposite is true, too. Um, look at Waterworld, for example. Um but, you know, there, there are definitely clear examples of how big budgets can create fantastic artwork if given, if, if, if put in the hands of the right creator. Right. I mean, one of our favorite directors, David Fincher, got his start making music videos and commercials. Oh, yeah. So, and, and that's probably common of even more people than I'm thinking of right now. But um, that's not where we're going with this. But basically, if you haven't guessed yet, our big news today is that we have our first sponsor. And our sponsor is one of is part of a division of one of those large conglomerates like Google and Apple that uh, Lamb has mentioned. This, in this case, being Amazon. Our sponsor is Audible. Audible is a podcast. I mean, a podcast and audiobook service. If you haven't heard of it, I doubt you haven't heard of it though. They are the biggest in the world. And one of the reasons that we're excited about it is is because Lamb and I 
love books. So I don't have a problem getting on here and shilling books to you guys. But uh, what we want to do every week, instead of uh, you know just telling you, go to Audible and uh, get get a free trial and download this one book. Every book, every week, we want to bring you a different book. Um, this week, I'll, I'll I'll provide a book for you that I think is really great that you might want to check out with your free trial. Next week, Lamb will, and uh, I don't know. We're just going to try to approach this as genuinely and authentically as we can. So. If you do not have an Audible membership or you are interested in checking it out, um, you instead of maybe listening to us on your drive today, you want to listen to a book, um, you would go to audibletrial.com and forward slash, yes, you guessed it, random badassery. All one word, though. So audibletrial.com forward slash random badassery for a, th- a free trial. It's 30 days. And with that 30 days, you get a free book. And what's really cool about Audible, one of the reasons that that I've used them a lot, um, one of the reasons that I stuck with Audible, even though there was a lot of other great services, like um, I I totally forgot the name of them (laughs) because I think two of them went out. Two of them went out of business, so I guess it doesn't matter. But they were doing um, kind of more of a Netflix things where you had like a all you can read. for $10 a month or whatever. One of the reasons I went to Audible was because when you're done with Audible, you don't want to pay for Audible anymore. All of the books that you got, because the way it works is you pay your, I think it's $15 a month, and you get your book. You get one free book. And then any books that you buy an additional after that during the month are at a discounted price. And it's usually at least 20%. I think it's sometimes it's as much as 50% or 80 Um but all those books that you get during that time, they're still yours. You're literally you're, – so your monthly fee, you're actually paying for those books. You own those. So when you stop paying for Audible and you sign into that account, all of those books are still there. And here's the really cool part. They're downloadable. So if you never want to go to Audible again, you just want to use Audible for a year to get 12 books or 12 audiobooks, you can go – Download those, stick them on a hard drive, and you own them. It's totally yours. There's no DRM on it or anything. So for me, that was the kind of the clincher because uh, at a certain point for me, I started using uh, my Kindle more, and Kindle has a, kind of a tie-in with Audible where you can listen to the audiobooks. Um, at a, you get them at a discounted price, but they sync together so you can read the page and listen at the same time. So I didn't need my Audible membership anymore. So I canceled my Audible membership, and I've been buying my audiobooks through uh, Kindle. But I still own all of those audiobooks that I had for three years. So I, I don't I don't know if I can plug that anymore without getting a little too far. But I will <laughs> say this. If you're going to go do a f- free trial, um, the book that I suggest this, this week is Hitch 22 by Christopher Hitchens. It is the first book I ever downloaded on Audible. It is the, I think the first audio book I ever listened to, and it's read by Christopher Hitchens himself. Who, um, if you know anything about Christopher Hitchens, he is he unfortunately died of cancer several years ago. So the chances of hearing him read another book are pretty slim. It's the story of his. It's the story of his life. He was a very educated man, um, very, very fascinating life. Um, just extraordinary book. I've I've probably listened to it three or four times. Just I mean his reading voice. Is I Lamb asked me a question on Instagram the other day who one of my favorite voices is, and uh, I said 
Aretha Franklin for singing, Patrick Stewart for reading, and then Nick Cave for both. But I totally forgot about Hitch mm. because he has so much power power in that voice. Um, have you used audiobooks, Lamb? Yeah, I used to use Audible all the time. I mean, for the download feature alone, because I used to travel a lot for work. Um, that used to be, and, and some of my trips were very, very long. Like, you know, there were times where I was traveling overseas or across across the entire country. So, you know, I'd have four or five hours. Um, and the download feature on Audible was an absolute godsend. Like there were times where, you know, obviously in, on a plane you didn't, at least not until recently you didn't have an internet connection, so you couldn't just stream things. Um, so, you know, I, their entire collections of books, like I think before I even touched a single Harry Potter book, for example, I, I listened to the entire, um, audiobook series on Audible. And by the way, the audiobooks are really, really good for that series. Um, I, I feel terrible not remembering the name of the, the person who read those books, but, um, it, it's, it's very, very good. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I, I, I still use audiobooks to this day, uh, between podcasts and audiobooks. That's pretty much all I'm doing in the car when I'm, I'm commuting. So, you know, it's at least a full audiobook um, a week or at least, uh, you know, two or three throughout the course of the week, depending on whether I mix it in with some podcasts as well. See, that's the extraordinary thing to me. I think, you know, a lot of people have talked, by the way, we're moving past that section and we're going into our rambling. <laughs> yeah, we're out of the advertisement stuff. Yeah. One of the things I, you know, people have been talking for the last years. Oh, the future of everything is in video. The future of everything is video. I disagree. I think the future of everything is in audio. Mm. Uh, because uh, audio, you can, I mean, think of all the things you can do while you're listening to a podcast or listening to a book, you know, that you can't do while watching a video. You can't drive, can't go for a jog, you can't work, you know, you can't uh, fix your car. All these things you can do while you got, you know, your AirPods or your EarPods or your, your Beats or I only named three Apple products because I can't think of a single headphone for some reason <laughs> right now that isn't made by Apple. But you've got, you know, whatever you got in your ears, and you can listen to these things doing other stuff. And I think, to me, that's that's power. That's just something, there's an intimacy to audio that people that people don't give enough credit to. One of our listeners, Anna, she listens to stuff in the background while she's making art. Why? Because it's, it's audio. You can do that. That's, that's, that's an intimate thing, to, to be part of somebody's um, routine while they're making art. Yeah, I can't really think of an artist that I know that doesn't do that. Um, you know, that doesn't throw on their favorite song or, or a podcast or something like that um, while, while they're doing stuff. You know, what's funny is I, back in the day when I, I first started getting into audiobooks and stuff, I I actually was against audiobooks. I feel so stupid for saying that now. Um, but I, I thought audiobooks were, were kind of the death of actual books. What a, what an idiotic thing to think. Um it not only isn't it, it's inspired me to have more interest in certain books that I would have never found otherwise. Um, and it's allowed me to, to consume them in ways. Cause you know, like when you're on a plane, for example, and you just want to kick back and, 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 you know, put your head back and close your eyes. You don't want to focus on a book for 12 hours. Um, it allows you the, the option to do that. And there are so many books that I've consumed because of that. I mean, it's amazing. Um, there are certain books that like, um, uh, the Martian, for example, which I never would have read in hardback form or paperback form if I didn't have the audiobook, and I would have missed out. It was a great book. Um, it was a lot of fun. So, yeah, um, I definitely think the medium has evolved quite a bit, and Audible has been a big part of that, as well as you know the iTunes uh, audiobook service and stuff like that, and I, which is my first entry point to audiobooks. Um, but Audible just had an easier to access and more 
diverse library. Um, so it was, it was the interface just made a lot more sense to me. So I switched to that at some point and I've never looked back. I mean, my, my library is extensive now. <laughs> you shouldn't feel so bad about thinking poorly of audiobooks at first because I was in the same camp as you. Um, until I heard, like, I think it was an interview with Seth Godin, mm-hmm. and he talked about how he used uh, almost audiobooks almost exclusively. But he'd li- uh, because my problem with it is I, I like to highlight and take notes, mm-hmm. and um, that's really important to me. You guys have heard me talk about that a million times, so you don't need me to explain that anymore. But with an audiobook, I couldn't do that. You know, I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm just gonna this information is just gonna be going in one ear and drifting out the other. But in the Seth Godin interview, he said something about listening to audiobooks over and over again, just hammering those points in. And I was like, and something about that, it clicked with me. I'm like, oh. Then I swear, it must have been like a month afterwards, Audible introduced the, and this is how you can tell we're not professional shills. Um, I don't remember what the feature is called. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a feature in the app that lets you take audio clips. So you can literally highlight audio. Um, so you can go back and it's like highlights, but it, they're just like audio clips. So you, you can remember that sentence or that paragraph, which is, I just, I thought that was really innovative and cool. And it came at the time when I was like, uh, eh, this is exactly what I need. Oh, by the way, another thing I want to talk about well, before we get into, by the way, we are also doing a Cohen brothers today. That's two, by the ways stacked on top of each other. Um, we finally got around to the Cohen brothers, but before we do that, Let's talk a minute about what are we going to talk about, Lam? What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where you're going with that. Even though I told you before we started. Yeah. <laughs> see, we, we wound so many different places. I totally see. This is why you shouldn't give me plans. It never works out. I completely, I completely got derailed. All right. So what are we talking about? Bring a little bit of reality in. Oh. Um, we're going to talk about the monthly creative challenge. Ah, geez. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Thank you guys so far who everybody who has participated. It's been awesome. We got off for for a two week, you know, mid month start. I think we we had a really great beginning to this project. Um we are now in it uh what what week is this? We're the first I guess is a little bit over the first week. We're eleven days into this month. So uh we've already had our first entry from Trista on light. Uh, or as Lamb um, explained it. What does light mean to you? That is the prompt for this month. And if this is the first time you're listening, monthly creative challenge is really simple. Hey, we're going to give you a prompt every month. Go make something. I don't, it doesn't have to be art. Go make something that that word or that prompt or that sentence inspires you to make, take a photo of it, post it on Instagram, tag at random badassery, and share it with us. If you don't have Instagram, share it wherever. And and by the way, the door is completely open on this one. It can be a poem. It can be a song. It can be part of a song. It can be an image. It can be anything. So don't feel a like you're limited game. to a particular... Yeah, a video game, whatever. Um, so don't feel limited. A GIF, if you feel like producing one of those. Um, it, it can be anything as long as um, the, the, the word that inspires you or the meaning for that word inspires you, which is light. So... Find us on any one of our many platforms and, and send it to us so we can we can show it off. Um, also, we may potentially we're, we're still working on this, but we may potentially have a space in which we gather all of these pieces 
um, in, in something of a gallery um, as well. So we're going to have uh, that coming up in the near future. Um, so yeah, keep, keep your eye out for that, but yeah, continue to produce stuff and send it our way. Uh, we love seeing it. We love seeing people produce stuff and we love knowing, um, that we're, we're, we're doing things that are helping to creatively inspire people. Um, which by the way, over the last, uh, week, um, so many of you have reached out to us to tell us, um, what you thought about the show. And I'm, I'm humbled and shocked by it. Like Chad and I, cause we receive it on so many different outlets, um, that, you know, Chad will receive one. He'll send it to me. I'll receive one. I'll send it to Chad. Uh, but thank you guys for for the outpouring of of of, of support. It's it's really humbling and and really really cool. Um, you know, a lot of times Chad and I think we're we're just sitting on desert islands with microphones and just talking to coconuts. Um, but you know, every every so often we get a reminder that those coconuts are actually people and that island is actually the world. So uh, thank you guys, thank you guys for doing that. Yeah, and as long as you guys are out there, we're going to be here. You know, this is this is. We've we've talked a little bit about it before, but this is something. This it's not just something we do. This is something we're we're working on our best to live. So, this is this is something that we're very dedicated to, and that something is specifically is you, and that's why this monthly we created this monthly creative challenge. It benefits us uh, in no way financially or anything like that. We're not selling your artwork. You're just sending us photos of it. Um, we just want you guys to remember that you're creative creatures, that you are uh, people with a voice, and that you can make things and you can have fun and that it doesn't have to be serious. It can just be something that you enjoy. It can be serious if you want it to be. But we just want you to make stuff because when we make things, the world becomes more beautiful. And that's the world we want to live in. So... With that said, let's talk about people who like to make movies about putting people into wood chippers. Mm. <laughs> <clears throat> That's a heck of a lead-in. Welcome to the Coen Brothers section of the show, presented by the Coen Brothers. So, um, interesting thing that Lamb and I figured out before we started this episode. Lamb prepared for this episode by watching a lot of Coen Brothers movies. I watched one. <laughs> I, instead, instead, I read I read a book about them, watched a bunch of interviews with them, and uh, just all around tried to tried to find. There's not a lot of them explaining how they work, but there. I mean, there's a little bit here and there, but more uh, having to read what people think that have worked with them about the way they work. So, I think between the two of us, you guys are get a pretty interesting perspective on these two talented brothers from is it Minneapolis. Uh, yes. Or, oh no, St. Louis Park, which is a suburb of Minneapolis. So yeah, around that area. All right. So, Close how many movies did you watch for this, Lamb? Oh, dear God. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I went back through and I watched some that, that I didn't know were them. Um, like one of my favorite movies of all time, which, uh, uh apparently they co-wrote with, uh, Sam Raimi was, uh, The Hudsucker Proxy. Um, and that, by the way, I mean... It, it, it's it's an allegory for marketing and 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 business, like we just described earlier in the the sh the show. That is fascinating and really really funny. Um, I it's very very slapstick. Well, not just slapstick. How do I describe it? It's 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 very nuanced um, and it's very um, outlandish. Um, if any of you have seen Brazil, it's kind of in that same ilk. Um, and Tim Robbins is the main character, and basically he's he's a guy who's placed onto the board um, of a failing toy or a failing large corporation. Um, and he's put there because he's an idiot, or at least they perceive him to be an idiot. Um, and what the, the, the board is trying to do is tank 
the, the, the stock price so they can rebuy it at a cheaper price. Um, unfortunately, uh, Tim Robbins' character ends up doing a fantastic job um, as head of the company and he by, by inadvertently inventing the hula hoop. Um, so it's a fascinating uh, movie. I, I think in total, I probably watched seven, which is a lot of Cohen, by the way. Um, watched seven movies um, between the time where we, we said we were going to do it and, and after. And of course, after watching some of the movies, I, I read about them as well. So interesting to see where they've gone with a lot of this. They, they seem to work with the same people quite a bit. And I had no idea um, prior to our dive into the Coens that they were friends with Sam Raimi. Uh, who's another one of my heroes? Yeah, he was a huge influence on them, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. I saw saw one thing where they 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 talked about how Evil Dead was was the, probably the biggest influence on them. Um, not because they wanted to make something like Evil Dead, but they saw what Sam did, which was kind of raising his own money. Uh, basically, they saw how independent film could function, and they decided let's make let's do it because they. Uh, I don't know if you ran across this in your research, but as they were kids. They were making movies as kids with Super 8s. Yeah. They yeah. would watch They would watch TV and go outside and mimic it. Um, so they saw what Sam Raimi did, and they're like, dude, let's do that. And uh, I don't know. That's one of the things that in, in doing this research on these guys, I'm, I saw so many principles that we've talked about in this show before popping up with them as being great exemplars of it. You know, like this idea of just going out there and doing it. You know, not not caring what the result is, just making things. We just talked about yeah. that, and and that's kind of how they started. Yeah, they mowed lawns to buy their uh, their camera and just couldn't stop. Like they were shooting all the time. You mentioned a couple of the films that that you didn't know were them. Which one? Which ones didn't you know were theirs? I feel terrible for not knowing um, Miller's Crossing. Uh, apparently, one of their largest movies and, and most successful movies. Um, I, I kind of vaguely knew when I first saw Raising Arizona that it was them, but I didn't know who they were at the time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I said, oh, Coen Brothers, cool, whatever. You know, like I, I didn't, I, and by then they didn't, they hadn't had that illustrious of a history. Um, but I remember how floored I was when I originally saw um, Raising Arizona. And of course, the second viewing, um, you know, 15 years later is significantly more impressive than the first because, you know, when... When I saw the, the when I saw it the first time, I didn't quite understand the nuances, um, nor did I have as much in the, as an extensive um, experience with the cinematic world. So I appreciate that movie a heck of a lot more now um, than I did when I originally saw it. Even though when I first saw it, I thought it was amazing. Um, but yeah, Raising Arizona, which I still hail by the way to be the best Nicolas Cage performance ever. What's interesting about that film too is uh, it's essentially a live action cartoon. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> the mechanics of everything that happened in that movie. I saw somebody in my reading, somebody describe it as that, and it clicked for me, and I'm like, oh, yeah. But what's also really interesting is, uh, I don't know if you remember, there's a shot where um, somebody's running across, the camera's running across the ground, and it goes up the ladder into the window. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know exactly what shot you're talking about. Yeah, That's uh -huh. literally a direct shot i mean it's one shot it's all one continuous shot but that's def a, a direct reference to a shot in the evil dead and mm -hmm. i guess they did for the couple first couple movies them and sam raimi would go back and forth referencing each other with camera moves and and certain little things here and there how cool of a creative relationship is that <laughs> the beatles and uh, bob dylan had one like that too they would reference each other in their songs oh interesting i didn't know that signs of greatness 
Um, yeah, I guess once you get to that level, kind of greatness kind of, you know, you follow greatness around. I mean, if I, if I look through the, the library um, of, of, of stuff of the cones, they, they have a tendency to work a lot with the same people. And mm-hmm. I, I get the sense that it's, it's, you know, they all just kind of like each other. And so because of that, they, they all just work together very well and, and, and can produce fantastic things without the difficulty of, um, you know, for anyone who hasn't been on a, a movie set or a film set or a, any kind of um, show, um, there's a there's a weird feel out period in the beginning of every project where everyone kind of figures out what strengths and weaknesses each person has, what what idiosyncrasies everyone has. Um, and there's definitely an awkwardness to that. Um, and, and so when you look at certain directors, like the Coens are a good example of this. Steven Soderbergh is also a good example of this. David Lynch, to a certain extent. Um, they always Tim have Burton. a tendency. Yeah. Uh, Tim Burton, um, Steven Spielberg, they all kind of work with the same people a lot. And the reason why is because they know them. Um, they, it's like, it's like working with a friend and don't underestimate the power of that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Every once in a while, it is great to get a new perspective and work with someone you've never worked with in order to get a fresh perspective on not just your work, um, but on, on whatever project it is that you have kicking around and or collaborating with that person. Um, but there's also an efficiency to familiarity that, that can't be, can't be denied either. You know, there's, there's definitely a power to having a crew that you trust and know very, very well. Like if you look at a guy like Steven Spielberg, for example, he's worked with the same group of people, costume designers, um, cinematographers, editors, almost all of them have been the same throughout his entire career. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's because he knows their work and they know his. When you look at music, it's actually even more common, right? You know, the Beatles, Jim Martin, always working with Jim Martin, uh, Radiohead, always working with Nigel Goodrich. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's so many examples of it. You uh, two working with Flood uh, mm-hmm. or Daniel Lamois as well. It's it makes sense. But what's really interesting to me, and I can't say this for all the directors, um, but I imagine it's the same for them. But I know specifically with the Coens, one of the reasons that people show up a lot too is when they're writing. Sometimes they'll write a role specifically for somebody to be like, hmm, I would really love to see John Goodman as this. Mm-hmm. I would love to see him play this. So they create these parts because uh, they know the, the capabilities of these actors and they want to stretch them and they want to play with them. You know, it's, it's like their favorite toys, almost like, well, what if we take <laughs> this guy and put him in this situation? And it. It's it's I think that's why people like to work with them, too, because they know that they're not going to be pigeonholed. Sure. You know, they're going to put them in different in strange situations. I mean, look at all the different um, different versions of, of idiots that George Clooney has played in I think, the five, <laughs> the five uh, Coen Brothers films. But he doesn't get cast as idiots anywhere else in Hollywood. You know what I mean? But oh, and I love it. I love it, man. It's like it's like when uh, Trey Parker and uh, Matt Stone made uh, George Clooney a dog in South Park and he was just barking the entire episode. Right. Exactly. So I, I, I love I actually love that idea of seeing actors uh, in so many different places, you know, just sure. Uh, John, John Turturro, John Goodman, who else? Uh, John Polito, they've used a lot. That's three Johns. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yep. They're fond of uh, Josh, Josh Berlin. Right. Oh, and of course, Francis McDormand, who before we did this, I didn't know was married to Ethan. Is it Ethan yeah, and has Joel? been. And Joel, uh, she's been married to Joel for more than 20 years. Who knew? Yeah. The, uh, 1984, I believe yep. they got married. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, that's that's a, that's an extraordinary thing too. I bet for them to be able to use um, one of their wives in the project, and and it's not like nepotism. She's a very very talented. No, actress. she's an amazing actress. Yeah, she's she's a great example of of an actress that's done a lot of different roles for them too as well. Like I mean, if you go from like Raising Arizona to Fargo to Burn After Reading, they're all such different roles. Um, yeah, I, 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 that's, I guess that's, that's true in almost every circumstance. You know, if you find someone who's really, really talented, then you just find creative ways to use them. You know, if you look at a guy like John Goodman, for example, and the things that he's done with the Cohen, it's like, I, we're going to talk about the big Lebowski. Don't get me wrong, because it's impossible to talk about the Coens without talking about the big Lebowski. But John Goodman's role in that is awesome. <laughs> I love John Goodman, that movie. And Barton Fink, where he's. Oh, I don't actually. I don't want to ruin it because that's the kind yeah. of movie. If you haven't seen, don't it. don't spoil it, buddy. Don't spoil it. Is <laughs> extraordinary in in that movie, and he's great in uh, Oh Brother War out there. I mean, yeah. Let's just I'll just, I'll just put it on the table right now. I think John Goodman is one of the most underrated actors uh, of our time. I think people think of him as like, oh, he's he's okay. He's extraordinary. Also underrated musician. He's a fantastic musician too. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, oh, speaking of other things I didn't know, and you mentioned Burn After Reading, I did not know that that was a Coen Brothers movie, and I watched it on accident last week. Huh. Um, and I, I also had no idea what that movie was. I went into it thinking it was going to be kind of a screwball comedy. I think the advertisements for it were awful. That is yeah, not a screwball totally, comedy. Totally did, yeah, they did not tell the story of that movie at all. It is way darker than that. <laughs> I thought, like, if, if I were going to compare it to other Coen Brothers movies, it would be more akin to Hail Caesar or Big Lebowski. And mm -hmm. in reality, it was way, way closer to Fargo. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, 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 it had its funny moments, but it definitely wasn't slapstick like, like uh, Hail Caesar. Oh, that's one I still didn't see. I'm annoyed that I didn't get to see that before this episode, but I couldn't find it. Um so yeah, I I, I I hear you. I mean, I, I don't know who cut the trailer for that movie, um, but it was not even close to representative of what that movie actually was. And I think because of that, the movie didn't really do all that well um, at the box office because people were expecting something entirely different when they came into it. Uh, without, without going into specifically what I mean, but since you've seen it, you'll understand what I mean. And anybody who's listened will understand. One of the most, I mean, I kind of got that it was darker than I expected a little bit by this time in the movie, but the scene in the closet, mm -hmm. when when the closet scene happened, I was like, oh, Fargo. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, it clicked. I'm like, this, oh, okay. This oh, it was so, it was so sudden. <laughs> and, oh my God. And John Malkovich is so angry, that whole movie. Uh, another I, I at some point we've got to do malkovich he's i love malkovich i just love malkovich i want to be friends with malkovich have you seen his squarespace commercials yes i have they are absolutely hilarious <laughs> there's a great advertise i mean a great example of creativity and advertising the malkovich advertisements for squarespace the squarespace campaign with jeff bridges as well oh yeah it's really good yeah Name whatever company they hired to to start doing their ads for them. Very very smart advertising company. Very creative and mm -hmm. refreshing as well. 
Yeah, it's rare that I I actually I actively seek out commercials because of how entertaining they are. Um, that is definitely that is definitely a series like the Malkovich ones alone. I, I occasionally just will YouTube just so I can find them. They're really good. Oh, they're brilliant. I wonder I wonder who that did those actually. I'm I'm actually going to look that up later. I'm I'm very curious as to, to who's the creative genius behind those. Yeah, brilliant campaign. I don't know. They, they, there should almost be like a creative i mean they have awards for advertising but there should be like a an acknowledgement of of that as an art form because when it's mm-hmm. done right it truly is it, it truly is um speaking of art forms one of the things that i uh i was reading before this and that i found really fascinating is they're talking about the cohens and how the cohens get a lot of credit for their dialogue mm-hmm. and uh, what this person really pointed out, and actually it was a YouTube video, um, showed is it's actually not the dialogue that's so refreshing with the Coens. Um, they showed an example. I can't remember the name of the movie. There's a movie that they wrote, um, but somebody else directed. I can't remember what it's called. I want to say it's like The Gambit or something like that. Um, and they showed a scene from that movie, and it, and it did not feel like the Coens at all. And mm-hmm. what this person's argument was is actually so. Uh, for those who don't know a lot about filmmaking, so you have this. Uh, I'm not going to use terms here because we don't we don't need to get into like specific terms. But usually, a, a very standard technique when people are doing dialogue in a film is the camera back and forth. Right? Cameras on one person, mm-hmm. cameras on the other person, cameras on one person, cameras on the other person. And what this person argued is that they found a way to do that in a refreshing way. Um, that the true talent of the Cohen brothers is in their editing mm-hmm. um, and their camera placement. So in those shot by shots, what they what they do is um, instead of using a close up, they usually use a wide cut. Um, so they use like a wider lens, so you can see more of the character. So you see their shoulders. Sometimes you can see their hands. Um, so this this plays it out to a little bit where you can see a little bit more movement. And a lot of that is because the Cohens uh, they. When they write scenes and they write stuff like that, they write in nonverbal things. Um, you know, like uh, somebody playing with a cigarette, somebody uh, spinning something between their fingers, anything like that, or person rolling their eyes or things like that. They work these things in, and it gives these scenes a genuineness that they wouldn't normally have. But the way that they edit um, – oh, another thing too is – their camera placement they don't uh they don't place their camera back they place they place it close with that wide with that wide lens so the camera rather than being in the perspective of where each character is when looking at the other it's actually between the two actors so it's closer than the the person they're talking to should be which gives the scene a little bit more intimacy like you feel like you're in it more and they use that for dramatic and comedic effects but one of the things they said is the rhythm of the cohen's dialogue is in their edits. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just I say my line, cut to the other person, they say their line. They cut between, and, and, they're, and I, they, you guys have to watch this video. I will put it in the, in the notes. There are great examples of this where they'll cut to the other person while, uh, well, they'll cut to person two, make <clears> this a little less confusing, while person one is still talking because person two is doing something with their body that gives some kind of... Uh, authenticity or it gives more depth to the understanding of the character in the scene. And once you start watching that, and then I, after that is when I um, started watching burn after reading and halfway through found out it was a Coen brothers film. 
uh, I started watching that in that movie, and I could see that even in the more dramatic film. And I, I just think that's incredible to – one of their incredible talents is to take something that's very standard and to just tweak it a little bit and give it a refreshing feel. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can see a lot of that in uh, – man, what's the um... – Jeez, now I'm, I, I gotta, I'm sorry, I, I'm all over the place with the, the library. I was such a huge fan of No Country for Old Men, and there are so many great examples of that. And, and it's funny, if, if, you, if you go into it expecting, um, I don't even know how to describe that movie, it, it, there, there's, there's so much subtlety and so much room in that movie, Um you know, so much space for the characters to breathe and the environments to breathe. And a lot of that is done with what you're talking about. You know, the, the pace of the edit, the style of the edit. I, I know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to that, that, that slightly off angle back towards the, the speaking character. Um, in some cases, like in, in, in the case of uh, Javier Bardem's character, um, there's almost a perspective when people are talking to him, like it's from the perspective of a child watching an old scary man talk. Um, and there's, there's definitely a subtle, just under him camera perspective that really creates that feeling. Um, and I think that there's, there's, there's such an amazing power to how they pulled that off. Um, and yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. It's, there's a lot of subtle, subtle camera moves and, and edits that create the pacing for the movies, um, in, in ways that very few people, I, I, you know, your standard, your standard moviegoer probably won't recognize. Um, it's the reason why a lot of their movies actually aren't um, initially successful. Like, I mean, if you look at the big Lebowski, for example, that the, the big Lebowski was not a commercial success, you know, most of the, the life and success of the, the, and, and, and acclaim of the big Lebowski was long after it was released. Um, when it was originally in theaters, it was actually a, a theatrical disappointment. Um, so there's, it's, I, I, I love that the Coens, um, because of their extensive history working together, I mean, you know, they've basically been making movies together for decades, um, and so because of that, there's, there's a certain understanding that they have, um, that also operates with a blatant disregard for what people want to see necessarily, um, versus what people need to see. Um, you know, it, it, what people need to see in order to feel a certain way about a character or a narrative. Um, you know, Javier Bardem's character is, is, is probably the clearest version of that for me, um, in the sense that all of the shots that are used for him are so carefully crafted to make him this very particular character. Um, and they never let up on that through the entire movie. One of the things that I found in my research was how, uh, so I read a book called the dudes abide, which is about, uh, <laughs> I saw that it's about a, a guy who was, oh, I can't remember what his original role is. He went through a couple of roles in the making of, uh, of the big Lebowski. So he was, he was a crew member. We'll just say that. And it was about his experience of watching them make this film and being a part of making the film. It's a very, very, very short book. Um, I didn't realize at the time that it was a Kindle single. But uh, one of the things that comes up in there is how at the time that they were working on that movie was the time that they were being nominated for awards. Award season was coming up. And mm -hmm. how completely disinterested in awards the Coens were. Not like anti, like, oh, we hate awards or anything like that. But they just really didn't care so much about going to the things or uh, winning 
although they really wanted um, Frances to win, uh, Frances McDormand, um, because they felt like she deserved it as an actress. Uh, so it's, it's just interesting to see two brothers making things just for themselves, essentially. They're making the movies they want to make. They're not making them to win awards. They're not making them to get credit. They're making them because of the films they want to make. And once again, I always try to pull the lessons out. That's a lesson. Look at the amazing things these guys make, and they're just making them because that's what they want to make. You know, how many times have, have, if you're a writer, you've probably read this a thousand times. Write the book you want to read. If you're a musician, you've heard, make the album that you want to hear. Yes, absolutely. And these guys have done that over and over again. That's why their movies are so weird and quirky and strange. It's because it's what they want to make. They're not trying to uh, to shave off the, the sharp, jagged edges of things. They leave them in because it's what they wanted. And I think that's so cool. Yeah, and in most cases, the jagged edges are the things that make them interesting. It's probably what makes them really jarring, too. Um, you know, for a lot of the moviegoers that go into movies now, obviously, we're a little we're a little bit more accepting of that level of, of creativity and nuance um, just because, you know, for certain people like the Coens, for example, they've raised the bar enough um, that we, we can expect those things in, in a broader perspective and a, to a much larger audience. But in the time that they made some of these things, it was definitely not, um, you know, it's definitely not something that was, that, that was cinematically acceptable. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, if you go back through the list of artists that we featured, um, I would say, without exception, all of them have been very particular um, in making the art that they want to make. Um, I can't think of an example of any of the ones that we've done that have not done that. Um, but the Coens are definitely in a different class when it comes to that, just because they weren't as weird as Lynch, um, you know, because Lynch, Lynch had his cult following um, because people purely gravitated to the weirdness and the weirdness itself became the defining characteristic versus the the interesting nature of the Coen's movies um, is that they're not necessarily weird. They're just very smart um, and they're so deliberate in how they're crafted. And I think that that is, is both initially difficult to accept, but in the long run um, has a much more powerful and lasting effect on the film goer. Like I don't think... Um, that I've ever seen a bad Cohen movie. Um, I've seen some that are not as interesting or just interesting and not, not great in their own ways. Um, but I, I, I liked almost all of, them. um, you know, for example, it, there's, and there are some movies, for example, that took me, took me a little bit to kind of, 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 of get the strong feeling for like, Oh brother, where art thou? I actually didn't like that movie a lot when I initially saw it, but the more times I've seen it, the more I like it. And now I absolutely love it. Um, uh, burn after reading feels like that a little bit for me too, is that, you know, on the first go, um, I actually thought it wasn't that great. Um, and progressively as I watched it more and more, I started to understand why it had to be the way that it was. And now I have a much deeper appreciation for it. So I almost feel like watching a Cohen movie, um, is watching a study in cinematic creativity and watching a masterclass in narrative storytelling that has absolutely no regard for, the audience necessarily as much as it, it, it holds true to the necessary narrative for the characters in order to develop in the way that they were meant to be developed in the story. I had the same problem with the big Lebowski. 
I did not like it. I, I probably hated it really? the first time I saw it. <laughs> I probably thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever seen. And if you have listened to this podcast long enough, or if you know me personally, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. Uh, I would have never guessed that. I would have never guessed it. I did not know that. It took a lot for it to click for me. Um, but, I mean, it's also uh, the place I was in life and things like that. It, you know, and also going back to what you said about comparing them to people we've talked about before. And, you know, they're not as weird as Lynch. But you know who strikingly I think there's uh, some similarities with is Murakami. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, sure. There's a sense of magic realism in some of their films where weird things happen and there's no explanation. You just have to accept that that weird thing happened. You know, uh, once again, going back to Barton Fink, there's a lot of things in Barton Fink where you're like, if you were approaching it from a realistic perspective, like that's, you know, that's not real. But in the movie, it is. Um, so I, I saw a lot of magic realism in them that I, I had never noticed before. Um, obviously, Raising Arizona, too, is a great example of that. Yeah. Oh, great movie. It's tough because whenever I do things like this, I always wonder, <clears throat> you know, if I were to tell a friend to watch three movies from the Coens, what would they be? And that's really tough. I almost have to cater it specifically to the person I'm talking to. Yeah, I think you would. But, I mean, if you had to do a blanket, I would, like, for me, obviously, I'd make mm -hmm. somebody watch Big Lebowski, but they have to watch it three times. Maybe not in a row. Yeah. Fargo. And and you have to, I was going to say, you have to watch it three times before months apart. <laughs> But I'd have trouble coming up with the third one. Those two are definite. And so why? So why Fargo? I'm curious about that one. Oh, I just feel like uh, you. It's it's the there's two sides of the Coens, right? There's the comedy side and there's the drama side. And I feel like mm -hmm. uh, for most of us uh, who were already watching the Coens, when when Fargo came out, that was the movie that made us realize, oh, this other thing they're really good at too. Um, so for sure. me, it always stands out as, as an exemplification of their of their drama. And I'm not a huge fan mm -hmm. of No Country for Old Men. I actually thought I was bored for half that movie. Um, really? Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, I might need to watch it again. But I also don't like Tommy Lee Jones very much. So, uh, okay, <laughs> that could have a lot to do with it as well. Yeah, yeah, I I, I could care less about Tommy Lee Jones. Um, Although he's great, Men in I, Black. You know, I. I, I don't dislike him. I don't like him necessarily. Ah, funny. Uh, Men in Black 3, Josh Brolin, and Tim, Tommy Lee Jones. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I loved No Country for Old Men. But I think I loved No Country for Old Men because of because I just read um, The Road. And I so I, and, and a couple of other things that were like really slow and kind of boring. <laughs> so I think my, my artistic pace... Um, allowed me to read that or to watch um, No Country for Old Men and be patient enough to kind of get through it um, because there's a lot of really interesting character development, but it takes its time. You know, it's it's a really it's a really grueling movie in that sense. Um, so I, I see where you're I see where you're coming from, um, but you yeah you, if you're not in the, if you're in the wrong mindset, then that movie's kind of frustrating in how long it takes to get get somewhere. Um, but I absolutely loved it. I usually like slow movies. People have, I've, I mean, like The Remains of the Day, if anybody's seen that movie, that's a really slow movie, Being mm -hmm. There, another movie that's really slow, mm -hmm. um, what other slow, Brown Bunny, really, really slow, loved it, 
I don't know. I have. I, it's very strange. I, I tend to like slow movies because I do get wrapped up in character. But for some that just didn't gel with me the time I saw it. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. I I've only seen Hudsucker Proxy once, and I was like uh, fifteen when it came out. Totally didn't mm-hmm. get that movie, so I did not. Oh yeah, there's no way you there's no way you understand that movie at at, at fifteen. <laughs> you barely understand it at twenty five. Plus, I was on a date. Oh, you saw that during a date? That's yeah. that's not a great date movie. Jeez, good well, choice there, dude. Well done. Hey, I didn't pick it. Let's see. So, I mean, if I were to pick three, I mean, Fargo is definitely up there. Just because you're right, I I I see Fargo as the turning point for the Coens, um, in the sense that you know, in the way that you described, which is holy crap, they're good at this other thing too, and they're not just good at it; they're very good at it. Um. But the, the other two are tough. I mean, I, I think No Country for Old Men, for me personally, just be, but um, it doesn't end the way you think it should for a narrative of its kind. Um, and I really, really like that. I like movies that do that. And I like movies that do that, um, not necessarily to shock you, but because that's where the story was going and that's what would have happened. You know, I hate it when, when bad guys become idiots, for example. Like, there's, and if you're a successful assassin and you've been for the last 20 years, there's no way you'd make some stupid mistake just so a hero would win. You know what I mean? Um, so I really, I really liked that. Um, the third one I'm having a tough time with because there's a part of me that wants to put Lebowski uh, just because of how pivotal it was um, and how, how interesting it was. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I guess I got to come back to that um, because I also really, really liked um, raising Arizona and Barton Fink as well. So there's, there's, there's that triumvirate of three movies that I, I think Raising Arizona probably ends up winning just because it was kind of the the first real push we had into what the Coens were capable of and how intelligently crafted a movie of its kind could be. So I, I think that that probably hits my number three on the must-watch list for the Coens, but it's a tight one. I also think that you got to watch Barton Fink as well. Um, it's a fantastic movie. Yeah, see, I think uh, Barton Fink is probably would be my third, but I, I feel like... Maybe if you made it through, if you got Big Lebowski and you got Fargo, then I could show you Barton Fink. But if you didn't like one of those other two, because <laughs> Barton <laughs> Fink is, it's 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 rough to put somebody through if it's the first thing by somebody that they're seeing. Because oh yeah, no 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 no, definitely not. You don't want it. You don't want that to be the fourth movie they see from the Coens. You want it to be like the sixth or seventh movie you see from the Coens. And it is like it's a rough mix because is it a comedy or is it a drama? It's very dark, but at times very, very yeah. funny and very absurd. Uh, I would say in a lot of ways it's their strangest film. You know, in, in, in one thing I will also say about that too is um, there are certain actors I have difficulty watching. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio, for example. I don't know why. Something about his voice and something about his face I just, I just have a hard time with, even though he's a fantastic actor and I respect his career. But something about the way his manner is just kind of really bugs me. Um, and before I watched Barton Fink, I really didn't like John Turturro. Mm. Um, something about his voice and his squirrely rat-like nature was was not something that jived with me well. Like I said, though, I mean, it's not like I don't I, I disrespect the man. He's had a fantastic career. It's just hard for me to watch him. Barton Fink changed my mind on that. Uh, Barton Fink made me like John Turturro much, much more um, than I had previous to that. Um, I, don't get me wrong. I'd always like John Goodman, so whatever. Um but 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 Totoro, there was a there was a new life for Totoro in my mind after I saw Barton Fink. Yeah, he's. I mean, that movie is just both of them. 
so much magic between the two of them there. And I wouldn't have thought pairing the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought that chemistry would, I never thought when I saw the, the original, you can, you know, cause everyone always tells you, you know, go see Barton Fink, whatever. And on the poster for Barton Fink, it's John Turturro's surprised face. Um, and the two, and the name right below his is John Goodman. I'm like, how the heck is that going to work? <laughs> but yeah, it works remarkably well. And it's one of the best one, two punches, um, in, in that kind of, in that kind of regard for a narrative story, for, for a narrative give and take between two characters that I've, I've, I've seen in a while. That's, that's really, really high up there. What's fascinating too, is that the chemistry between them in, Oh brother, War Out Thou is completely different. And even in the small scenes that sure. they share in Big Lebowski, chemistry, completely different. It's just mm-hmm. putting different actors in the mix. I, I think that's the, one of the things that's really cool about the Coens. They might use the same actors, but they don't use them in the same ways with each other. Um, you know, like, oh, this guy's a lead in this one, but he's, you know, he's a supporting in this one. Um, you know, like uh, Barton Fink, it's John Turturro and John Goodman. Pretty much most of the movies, the two of them, revolves around the two of them. But then throw George Clooney into the mix and make it a more of a comedy. Oh, completely different chemistry. Now throw Jeff Bridges into the mix with the two of them and make it – and, and – uh, Steve Buscemi and make it a complete comedy, completely different chemistry as well. Sure. And I think that's, that's kind of, they're like chemists. They really are. They're mixing with the same chemicals, but they're getting completely different reactions. I will say that I, I greatly appreciate that Clooney is always made to be an idiot somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I love that so much, but I, I love that they do that. Even in, even in burn after reading. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's. I mean, there's points where he's very serious, but he's also making a dildo chair. <laughs> yeah, and there's I, I and I I actually really like um, all of the Clooney movies where he's that kind of character too. Um, I, I, I I'm gonna. It's the movie he was in with Jennifer Lopez. Do you remember what movie that was? Uh, mm, yes, I remember, but I can't remember. It's called Close. Close. No, I don't know. <laughs> it's 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 yeah don Cheadle's in it and a bunch of other people it's really out really of good. sight um <clears throat> the point is out of sight there you go uh the point is i like it when he plays characters that are just smart enough to be dumb you know what i mean <laughs> right so so that 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 to me kind of feels like it fits the wheelhouse for Clooney, and he he's at his best i think when He's he's got the right combination of smart and dumb character. It's really really refreshing actually to see a guy of his his stature and charisma and 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 illustrious career doing stuff like that because it means he doesn't take himself too seriously. I really like that. He's somebody who has an extraordinary career. I'd love to do an episode on him someday actually, because other than being an actor, he's had so much influence in things. He's the reason we had South Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he brought it to television and bat and bat nipples. Um. But we'll leave that alone. That's that's as much Tim Burton's <laughs> fault as it is Clooney's. I love that he still apologizes to about it for to this day. That wasn't Tim Burton. Oh, the, oh, wasn't who was that? No. Was that Schumacher? Yeah, Tim Burton only did the first two. He only did it with Michael. Ah, gotcha. Only okay. the Michael Keaton ones. Got it. Okay. That was uh, was it? Uh, was it Soderbergh? No. No, no, probably Joel Schumacher. I think. Yes. I don't know. Um, Schumacher, which makes sense. But regardless, I mean, his career has been, I, 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 there's a certain, and there's a certain set of characters that I, or um, set of actors that I think 
whose chemistry is really, really natural. Um, and I think Ocean's Eleven with Brad Pitt and, and George Clooney is one of the most clear examples I've seen of two characters that are obviously familiar with each other. And there's, there's a natural, there's, 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 there's a natural progression to their, their interactions that feels really, really close. Like they've been friends for a very long time. And rarely do I see characters that are supposed to be friends in movies that actually feel that way. And don't you feel like that exactly what you're talking about is every Coen brothers film? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I was going to say like, there's so much assumption. There's so many assumptions that are made in the, the Coen's, movies about, you know, um, like even in, in no country for old men, um, the reputation of Anton, which is Javier Bardem's character precedes him so much that every person that he runs into that has any inkling about who he is, is already really familiar with him. And I think that they do that so, so, so well. Um, you know, there's, 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 there's such a, a palpable sense of dread, um, that, that just follows him wherever he goes. And yeah, um, you know, that's, that's obviously true in the big Lebowski. I mean, those relationships are so clearly defined. <laughs> you know, which one surprised me was Brad Pitt and Francis McDormand in burn after reading the chemistry. Between yeah, the I two agree with that. Yeah, that was, that was a good one too. So <laughs> good. Uh, to the point where I think they're the two best parts of that film, actually. You know, I think Brad, Brad Pitt gets a bad rap, um, because he's a big Hollywood guy and because he's, he's a good looking dude and he's been in a bunch of huge blockbusters. I think he's, I actually think he's a much better actor than people realize. He's a great character actor. Yeah. And he's, and he's very willing to, to be a character actor. He doesn't have to be Brad Pitt in every movie. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. The movies where he was, uh, the least like the leading man, you know, where he was supporting 12 monkeys. Come on. You know, like where, oh, where yeah. he's not the lead character, totally. but he can be a little quirky and weird. He's great. It's it's the ones where he's the lead mm-hmm. that actually bore me. Yeah, sure. With the exception, well, I don't even know who the lead is in Seven, which is still in my top ten of movies of all time. Um, but yeah, I thought his character in Seven was really good too. The lead is the sin. Ah, true. Ah, you should have you should have written the marketing material. <laughs> Fincher's Fincher's the main most important part of Seven in reality. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Um, so back to the Coens, though. Speaking of, you know, like one of the things that, you know, we're going off on tangents here, but it's hard not to with the Coens because, I mean, these guys are just kind of, they're all over the place, but in in not a bad way. Um, you know, like there's so many references to things in, in their work, too. You know, not like um, not like South Park, um, which surprisingly has come up a lot in this episode. <laughs> not like South Park or Futurama, yeah, weird. where you're making these uh, jokes that rely on people getting it or Family Guy. Um, but kind of um, like if you if you watch The Big Lebowski, there's huge amount of references, uh, not only um, to things outside of that. You know, like uh, when you have some of the dance sequences um, in the dreams where they're wearing the bowling pins or whatever. That's totally, you know, the Busby Berkeley musicals. And um, th- there's uh, the the flying carpet from uh, 1001 Arabian Nights. These are all things that they brought in on purpose. But one of the reasons I love Big Lebowski, too, is this is something that um, I think is unique to the Coens, too, is they're very self-referential. Um, sure. Like in the Big Lebowski, the reason the Big Lebowski clicked with me, and I didn't explain this earlier, um, the reason I didn't get it is because I didn't see that self-referentialness. So I didn't understand how tight that script really is. I, I, to this day, I still, I still think that is one of the tightest, most concise, well-crafted scripts ever written. 
um, when you when you when you pay attention to the things that the dude says, which is Jeff Bridges' character, almost everything he says is a line that he stole from another character earlier in the film. Yep. From the the opening scene where he's buying milk with a check in the grocery store, and George Bush is on the TV in the background saying, "This aggression will not stand." He says that later. This aggression will not stand, man. Like. Everything he says, he steals from somebody else. His dreams, all of his dream sequences, uh, they all reference something else earlier in the film. Like the, the scene I was talking about with the bowl, with girls dressed as bowling pins. Um, you know, where it's like uh, they have uh, like brassiers that look like bowling balls. And it, there's, you know, it's like has like an operatic feel. Well, where'd that come from? Well, if you pay attention to the first time that he meets Julianne Moore's character, Maud. When she's flying through the air painting, she's listening to opera. Everything in that movie in some way refers to another point in that movie. And it's just that kind of care and that kind of meticulousness. And without being, um, they don't care if you notice that stuff. You know, they're not trying to beat you over the head to prove that they're clever. They're literally doing this because they get a kick out of it. They enjoy it. Yeah. (laughs) One of the things that Clooney said in I think it was an interview with um, Jimmy Kimmel, he said that uh, when when you're when you're taking uh, when you're doing your takes, the Coens are behind the camera and you can hear them honking, <laughs> and that's them laughing. <laughs> they're they're they because they get a kick out of seeing the thing that they written come to life. They're still such big kids, aren't they? I love that. It's so great. You know, they're they're big kids with they're big kids with big budgets, big toys, and and big time actors doing what essentially is clever versions of 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 really free, imaginative, and almost childlike scripts in some senses. Right. Um, you know, even 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 the more dramatic stories, um, they're 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 not overly complicated. They're they're like they're they're like dramatic or or, or thriller stories that you would tell a child almost. Um, and that's one thing I will say about about being a Cohen's fan um, is that the more you watch Cohen, Cohen the, the movies made by the Cohen's, the more you appreciate how they're crafted. Um, and I feel like you become a better movie watcher. You notice more detail. You notice more subtlety. Um, and the reason why is because you want to catch the joke. I mean, I think that's something that's really interesting about how the Cohen's are. Is that like you know they 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 at least from a cinematic perspective. They, they, you're, you want to be one of the cool kids and they, and they are the cool kids. They're the cool kids that are making cool stuff. And you want to, you want to be in on the joke. And I think because of that, like, you know, with movies like Burn After Reading or, or, or The Big Lebowski, The Big Lebowski is infinitely complex. Um, it's, it's such a slapstick story. I mean, there's people stealing carpets and, and, and fake kidnappings and, and cars being destroyed, but it's such an intelligently crafted movie. Um, that I think, I, I think, I honestly think that Lebowski, of all the movies in in the Cohen's library, should be one of the last ones you watch because I think you have to be ready for it, um, and you have to be ready to notice the things that you're describing. Like there's, you know, I I I definitely didn't see most of that the first time through, or even the second time through. I I wouldn't say that I noticed as much detail um, in the Big Lebowski because I always thought it was an okay movie, but I never hailed it as a, a great movie. Until a conversation that you and I had actually um, about four years ago, 
and you were you were mentioning the, the 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 dream sequence and you were describing some of the detail and i went back and i watched that movie again and it completely changed my perception of that entire movie um so i definitely think that that from that perspective it's it's you have to learn well you don't have to but i i feel like you would get much more out of all of the cohen's movies if you really take your time to go through the library like maybe take a cohen's brother movie like once every two or three weeks and watch them, you know, um, in between other things. Um, and I get the sense that by the time you get to the end, uh, you'll have a much deeper appreciation for the Coens and you'll also probably want to rewatch everything that you just watched. You know, we talk about their meticulousness, but you know what else is amazing to me? And this is, this is, we talk about bravery on this, uh, podcast a lot. And this is an example of creative bravery. They don't do research for their films. <laughs> that's true yeah so when they write things it's whatever whatever's rattling around in their head and that sometimes means things that aren't true um like for example hail caesar is loosely 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 i can't uh emphasize the word loosely um enough loosely based on a famous hollywood fixer called eddie mannix um actually interesting sidebar eddie mannix's wife was named tony mannix and she was uh, known for having a huge public affair with George Reeves, the man who played Superman on TV um, in the oh, interesting. in the fifties. And uh, she was actually in his house the night that he was murdered, or supposedly murdered. Whoa. Maybe killed himself. Huh. Anyways, uh, so that movie is kind of based on him, but they're not trying to tell his story. They just kind of used him as a starting place, and whatever they wanted to bring in, they brought in. And I just think that's so incredible be the, to be that flexible. Yet at the same time, uh, the guy that wrote that book, he said that they would storyboard everything before they started shooting. So they were that meticulous as well, to the point that when actors got their scripts, um, which are called the shrunken copies, are called sides. You know, it only has the scenes that that, that person's in. They don't have to give them all the other scenes. But in their sides were the storyboards for the scenes that they were in as well. So actors were getting storyboards. So there's that meticulousness. Yet, once again, flipping on its head, he straight up, he says, although the boys, which is, I guess, uh, people refer to them as the boys, although the boys had carefully mapped out storyboards, they weren't slaves to them. If they got to a location and a shot needed to be changed, they changed it. And as they cut the movie, certain sequences came together based on the footage that they had. I remember hearing that about No Country for Old Men, too, um, um, the way it ended and how, how uh, Tommy Lee Jones has that, that last monologue. Um, I remember reading somewhere that that wasn't intended, but it made so much sense that they kept it. Um, yeah, there's, there's, and, and I, I love the, the flexibility of that as artists. I mean, if you get so tied to a script, and we've been in projects like that where the person who produces it or, or is writing it or is directing it is so tied to the concept that they're unwilling to, to bend from it. Um, and I think going into an artistic project, especially if you're, you're, you're the Coens or you're basing it on something, having the ability to stay loose is almost its own challenge. You know, like for, for example, um, Oh, Bro oh brother, where art that was loosely based on um, Homer's odyssey. And it kind of is, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, like you could, you could tell at some point that they're just like, screw it. Let, we're, we're going off the rails. So we're just going to go completely off the rails. And, and I think that the ability to have that level of fun. And I think that, you know, ultimately I think that's the defining characteristic for me about the cones is that it just always seems like they're having so much fun doing this. 
um, you know, whether it's one of their serious projects or one of its their comedic ones, they just love being behind the camera and they just love producing, directing and writing. I mean, it just seems like they just get a huge kick out of it. And they and that love for filmmaking has never gone away. And that flexibility is not just stuff that's under their control as well. Like uh, it, they talked about in that book that uh, one of the things Jeff Bridges, I don't know if he does this on every movie, but he did it in The Big Lebowski, was he, he liked to kind of play around with the lines. Sometimes he'd say the line one way, sometimes he'd say it another way. Um, he'd change the words. And he tried to bring a different a different performance to every single take, a completely different performance to every single take. And they just let him do it. Like, you know, they weren't trying, no, no, we want you to do this. They just let him try it a different way. And then he tried a different way. This In this scene, the dude would seem more stoned. But in this take, he seemed a little bit more sober. Um, like, for example, the line... Mind if I do a J was originally, do you mind if I smoke a J or do you mind if I smoke a doobie? And then, uh, Bridges changes to the, the verb do, which I don't, I've never heard anybody outside of the dude ever say, mind if I do. Yeah. And, but it's, it's one of the lines that stands out in that movie. And he just, it's something that happened on the spot. They saw the magic in it and they kept it. I, I, I kind of stumbled upon this concept earlier when I was talking about them, when I said that they're like chemists. But I really, I, I, the more we've been talking about this, it's a really apt metaphor for them. They like playing with chemicals. They just like seeing what happens, you know, seeing what explodes and what doesn't. Now, have you seen any of the, uh, the the storyboard comparisons between the shots? Uh, well, now that I've mentioned, I definitely have to to put it put that in the show notes. Um, there are some fantastic videos out there that show. Um, the side-by-sides between J. Todd Anderson, who is their, their storyboard artist almost primarily, um, and the, the shots in the films themselves. Um, I've, I've got to send you some of these videos. They're pretty cool. Um, I watched probably three or four of them back-to-back, and they're, they're very interesting. I saw a piece, uh, a piece of an interview with that guy, but it didn't um, – right when it started to go into the stuff you're talking about, the particular one I was looking at, cut off. So I just saw him talking mm-hmm. about um, – I don't know if it's the same one you saw, but like he he storyboards his own intro to where he's like in a plane, and then he's in the middle of a road. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I, I I know which one you're talking about. Um, I saw that one too, but it's not the one I'm talking about. Okay, the one I'm talking about is specifically um showing chunks of no or uh, no country for old men and the storyboard side by side with the the shots in the, the film itself. Um, and I think, you know, that chemist, that chemist concept, I, I've been thinking a lot about it while we've been talking and it has to, it has to come from the fact of uh, them working together all the time. Sure. That, that, that whole idea, uh, that flexibility, but, um, meticulousness is two people working together. I mean, we, we don't call them. It's not often you hear somebody talk about them separately, even though like Joel always gets the, yeah. the directing credit. Um, they both, everybody says they both direct together. I'm not sure why. Um, just one of them takes the directing credit, but they're always working together. It's always the Coen brothers. And I mean, they write together, they direct together. That, that has to change your mindset. You know, the, the Nick Cave episode, we talked about, uh, collaboration and, um, his willingness to work with other people. This, I mean, this is another representation of that as well. These are two people that are always working together and they bring the same people in again. So that whole collaboration thing comes up here again. Mm-hmm. I love seeing how themes from other episodes keep recurring in other artists. It means we're on to something, I think. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. That's what I was going to say is that I think like, you know, the, the more we do the show, the more we do, um, the, these, these artist features, just the more we talk about art in general, cause there's not an episode that goes by that we don't, you know, dive into some part of the artistic process. You start to find commonalities. Um, you know, you start to find, um, through lines to creativity that I think, I think, you know, as, as much as I, I I'm afraid that we're going to repeat ourselves, um, more and more as we do this podcast, I feel like we're just barely scratching the surface. And I feel like as we, we get deeper and deeper, like I, I, I have a feeling, for example, that if we did this um, Coen's Brothers episode in a year, that we would have very different insights, you know? And I think that's the fascinating thing about art. And I think that's the incredible, the incredible uh, effect that this podcast can potentially have on us and potentially others as well, is that you start to see deeper and broader and deeper and broader and deeper and broader. And you start to really get a sense of how, how, especially for people like the Coens or, or, or Murakami or, or David Lynch, that they're exceptional and you don't really get how exceptional until you start to understand how exceptional others are and how similar they are to those exceptional people and how dissimilar they are to most other people. Um, and I think that, 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 you know, in, in studying the Coens for what they are, um, you know, in a lot of senses, I think the work that they produce is very much Murakami-ish in nature, but I think their spirit is a lot more Neil Gaiman, like Neil Gaiman in nature, in the sense that I just, you're right, they're, they're kids with chemistry sets. And I feel like they, there's, there's always such a sense of, of youthful exuberance in everything that they produce. Like they're, they, there's never been a throwaway movie that they've ever done. Every single project that they've done has been intense and, 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 and well-crafted and, even if it's not something that's critically or, or commercially successful, it's still a good movie for what it is, or, or it's a particular study in a certain type of movie. Like if you're going, like if you, if you look at intolerable cruelty, for example, it's a, it's a throwback to, to, to old school um, um, romantic comedies before romantic comedies became what they were in modern day, you know? So there's always, there's always a sense of, of, of just reckless abandon imagination and just, absolute fun that the Coens, um, have, have, have instilled in their work. And I think that, you know, if, if we're, and we've talked about it in the podcast before, but I think if there's something that we take away from, from, from this is that, you know, it, it pounds the point home for me, which is you have to have fun. You have to enjoy what you're doing and you have to approach it like a kid would approach it. And, and I think the Coens are such a spectacular example. of it. And that's exactly what we've been asking people to do with the creative challenge, the monthly creative challenge too, just have fun, just make things be the Cohen brothers. You know, um, one of the things that like for me that, um, really had a powerful resonance in the research that I did. Um, maybe you would say my lesson, my biggest lesson from the Cohen's is, um, when I read that the way that they deal with scripts is sometimes, you know, they're working on a script and they can't finish it. You know, it's just not working. They put it away and they start working on another one. And uh, it's the same thing with if they can't find the money or the, you know, the timing with the actors that they want is wrong or something. They just put it aside and they go and they work on something else. Uh, and that, to me, that's it's totally different than the way I work. I'm usually very tunnel vision. You know, I'm working on this novel. So to me, I, I would I, I see their mindset and I'm like, my God, that is so much more efficient and so much more. Uh, it's so much more efficient without being cold and rigid and um, restrained. It's so much more free while being so much more powerful. 
to be able to go, okay, I can't move forward on this anymore. Let me go work on this because I feel like uh, I'm, yes, it's time to work on a comedy. This drama, I'm not in a drama mood for writing. We talk a lot about mood of reading and watching things and being in the right mood for those. But maybe there's there's some validity to that um, when it comes to creating as well. You know, maybe you're not in the mood for that drama. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, and that doesn't just go from project to project that goes within the project as well. Like maybe this scene isn't going to work or this character shouldn't say this, or this doesn't feel right. Um, or this, this, this ending doesn't quite match the narrative. I mean, they're, they're so willing to just on a dime, just pivot change and, and produce something that makes more sense. And I think that that speaks to in, in, in artistic freeness that is, that is very lacking. I mean, if you, if you look at a lot of movies, um, some movies that I, I can't think of a, a, a great example off the top of my head, but a movie in which a decision that should have been made to kill something wasn't killed and it changed the entire course of the movie. And I think that the Coens will never have that problem. I think that they, 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 if it doesn't work, they get rid of it or they change it. And I think that that's, that speaks to a level of freeness and, and open-mindedness about their own artistic work that, that, you know, um, you've spoken about a billion times on this podcast, which is, you know, the old Stephen King thing, which is kill your darlings. Um, just because, just because you like it doesn't mean it works. And just because it works doesn't mean you have to like it. So that's, that's, that's a very powerful lesson that the Coens just repeat over and over and over again, whether it's character selection or narrative, um, or edit or, or style or whatever it may be. Like they're just so willing to change and they're so willing to change to make something better. Um, because they're not married, they're not so married to their concept that they're unwilling to let it go. I can think of an example for you, actually. Uh, Kings of New York. Wait, that was, uh, what it was called? Mm, yeah. Gangs of New York. Sorry. The, the one gangs of New York, the one with Scorsese, yeah. right? the Scorsese directed one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's so much in that movie that should have been cut that, I mean, that movie was some of the, I, I actually, somebody told me that that was a great movie and I think that it conceptually is a great movie. It just wasn't executed well. There's there's so much bloat. Yeah. In, I mean, like uh, Cameron Diaz's character, I understand that like she's like the motivating factor between these two men. But if you were worried about actually that movie, the fact that her character changes on a dime from one scene to another mm-hmm. means that her character didn't have enough time to develop, so they should have cut her. They should have cut her out of it sure. completely. And it that's that's a perfect example of what you're talking about. That it makes that movie, you know, like the end of the movie. There's this dramatic stuff that happens at the end of the movie, but I didn't feel emotional at the end of that film because the film hadn't uh, succeeded in in building up in the right way. So that movie, which could have been probably one of the greatest films ever made, ended up being a little flat compared to. Pretty much the worst, if you pick the worst Cohen movie, is more alive than that movie feels. I wanted to like that movie so much because, I mean, there's there's a, what a waste of Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> um, and, cons- and not only a waste of Daniel Day-Lewis, but what a waste of a character. Daniel Day-Lewis is amazing in that movie. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's, it's one of those, it's, it's one of those instances where I think if the Coens were to make that movie, they would have scrapped 40% of it. Um reshot a bunch of it and, and, and rewrote half the movie. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, because there's, 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 there were so many things that, that, that ego kept in that movie. And I don't know, maybe Scorsese thought it was a fantastic movie and that's the way he intended it to be. But I don't, I, I can't believe that. 
Um, I can't believe that because he's, he's a great filmmaker and he's made some of the best movies in Hollywood history. Um, but Gangs of New York was such an example of, of, and I don't know the history of that movie, so I don't know what led to the decisions that created such a, a, a scattered mess. Um, but I imagine that, that some of that had to be an unwillingness to let things go that you wanted in the movie in the first place. If I remember correctly, it's based on a book. So I think that's part of the problem too. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. They were unwilling to uh, make the changes necessary in the ways that they had to deviate from, from the book. And I think that is a huge problem and you'd never see that with the Coens. If it was the Coens and they yeah. were making that movie, it'd be like, I don't care how the guy wrote the book. This is our movie and our movie needs to work. Yeah. I love the example that you gave earlier about how they don't research. Um, I think that's, that's so in this particular case, in, in most instances, I don't, I, I don't like that. But in this particular case, I think it's great because it never ties you to a narrative. It never ties you to a concept. And I think that that's fantastic when you're, when you're, when you're making a film, especially like the Coens where the, 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 the mat, their magic is in their freedom. And the moment you take that away, they cease to be the Coens. And I think that's something we can say about all of us, right? When you, when you take that magic, <laughs> that's how you, how you rob us all of magic. We do it to ourselves all the time, you know? Sure. Every day. We, mm -hmm. we, we give ourselves, Absolutely. we give ourselves these constraints. We give ourselves these, this is the way it has to be. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way it should be, which is, is ironic because uh, that this should come up right now or coincidental, perhaps mm -hmm. maybe not ironic, but, um, the section of the book that I'm, um, of my book that I'm working on right now is the, the character's problem is that he's unable to see past the quote unquote, the way things should be, the way things should be done, the way things, huh. "Quote unquote," are, and uh, that's this is actually a great time to to be studying the Coens because that that is the problem. <laughs> you know, like I need to be the other way. I need that flexibility. I need that freedom um, when writing about somebody who doesn't have it. And uh, actually, I yeah, that's that's got to that's got to be an interesting dichotomy. You're you're trying to be flexible about a character that's inflexible. Have you, did you watch a, a simple man? Have you seen a simple man? No, I have not. That's, that's on the list, but I haven't seen it. I was it. so mad that that was not streaming because, uh, I, I watched a trailer for it and I'm like, oh my God, I need to watch this just for, um, my novel because there's so many similarities and themes that are hit upon there, uh, that it would be mm -hmm. fascinating to see how the Coens deal with it because I think it would be a great lesson for me to see, oh, this is how they dealt with it. This is how somebody who is free creatively can deal with those things. And this is, this is something sure. that's a lesson to all of you that maybe isn't coming from the Coens, but don't be afraid to copy, um, ideologies. You know, you don't want to copy word for word from people, but ideologies and ways of thinking, don't be afraid to copy those and mimic them from other people. That's why we bring you guys these lessons because we want you to try them on. These are like hats, you know? Put on a different hat when you need it. And the Cohen's hat is definitely not a bad hat to have. I mean, considering considering their illustrious history, like I said, I mean, it's one of those things where they're, the grounding principles that 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 make the Cohen's who they are to me is their their unwillingness to make something that they're not happy with or that they don't enjoy. And and that sounds like such a simple thing, but so few of us actually do that. <laughs> yeah, how many people actually sit and honk or laugh? At every little clever thing that they wrote, you know, like 
Sure. That's just a sense of exuberance. And this is this is actually something that's come up recently during the week um, in talking to somebody, um, a friend of mine, about the creative challenge because I've been asking a different person every day to be a part of this because I think it's great for all of us. Um, but one of the things that came up was, oh, that's really good because that, that will make me make something. I normally only make things when I'm in mm-hmm. a bad mood. And mm. – it's a mind. It reminded me of a, so a, a very limiting mindset of of my own that I had to overcome, and that was that I, I created. I used to think that I created things to um, exercise demons or to um, as therapy or however you want. You know, like exactly that. Like I have something bad's going on, so I'll write and then I feel better. But I came to this realization that it prevented me from writing when I needed to write. And, you know, you can never complete something if, if you're relying on only being in a bad mood, because then you have to make your life suck to stay in that bad mood all the time <laughs> to finish a project. Right. If, if that's the way you work, <laughs> but what sure. the, the, the ultimate conclusion of that realization was going back to what originally made me create. Why did I first start writing? Why did I first start drawing? Why did I first pick up the guitar? And it was for joy. It was for pleasure. It was for exuberance. It was because it was fun and it felt good. And if I wasn't going to create for those things, I didn't want to create at all anymore because it didn't, it, it didn't make sense anymore. I didn't want to be that unhappy person. I didn't want to have to stay an unhappy person in order to make something that was probably pathetic and probably uh, self-absorbed <laughs> because when you make things when you're in that sad, awful state, you're completely wrapped up in yourself and it comes across in your work. Trust me. Go read bad poetry. It totally comes across. Ugh. And uh, my my first book, it, it, I feel like that that that's the flaw with my first book is that literally it is all self-pity and it's not great. Ugh. Yeah. Um, so everybody, you may not necessarily watch, uh, listen to this and want to go watch a Coen Brothers film. I think you should, because I'd be surprised if you're listening to this podcast and you didn't like it because I kind of have a good feel for what our audience is like. And, uh, if you've stuck with us this far, then you probably share a lot of similarities with our tastes. Um, but more than anything, get that exuberance and that joy. Find it. Go back to where it came from and and just indulge in that. Doodle. Do something silly, you know? Have fun. Yeah, I think the lasting lesson for me from the Coens will be that if you took Ethan and Joel at 10 years old and you took Ethan and Joel at 40 years old, I think you would find so little difference between how they made things and how they felt about what they made it. How, how made it how they felt about what they made. Um, and I think that to me is the lasting lesson that they, they, they always remembered how to be kids and they always remembered how to enjoy what they did. They always, they always stuck true to, to how, how enjoyable the process was. And, you know, for me, I, I, I fall in the same boat as the rest of us, I guess, when it comes to, to, to creating stuff, which is, you know, I, I learned to express myself, um, emotionally in my teenage years and you know in your teenage years you're an angsty self-pitying monster um with very little 
outside perspective um, with very little objectivity on the world. And so a lot of us get stuck there in our creative mindsets. And I think that if you're going to get stuck anywhere, don't get stuck in who you were at, at, at 15, get stuck in who you were at 10, 